0: Today we're going to talk about what is the atonement, big word, we're going to study what is the cause of the atonement, why is the atonement necessary, what is the nature of the atonement, and then we're going to look at certain wrong views that people misunderstand about the atonement, and then we're going to even look at some controversial issues like did Christ actually descend into hell after he died or not, so we will be talking through better understanding this idea of the atonement but before we begin let me pray heavenly father thank you that we can be here and learn about the atonement to understand what it means that we have been atoned for our sins that you have made an incredible way for us to have a relationship with you thank you lord I pray that as we study this today, we will go deeper in our admiration for who you are, Jesus, and what you have done for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So the first question we're going to answer is, what is the cause of the atonement? But before that, this is how we would briefly define the atonement before we go deeper into it. It's the work Jesus did living and dying to earn our salvation. I think a lot of people assume the atonement is just that Jesus died for us. But we're going to learn today how it's important to understand how Jesus lived in order for there to be an atonement as well. So what is the cause of the atonement? The cause is God the Father's faithful love for us as well as his justice. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life god's justice occurred when god had to find a way for the penalty that we owed for our sins to be paid that is what god had to have he had to find a way for the penalty for our sins to be paid and this is why god sent jesus to be here's the big big word the propitiation or the sacrifice that would bear his wrath so that God could look favorably toward us. We needed a sacrifice. So let me ask you, discussion, why is it essential for us to believe that God is both loving and just in order to believe the atonement? Why does he need to be loving and just to believe in the atonement? Why is the atonement necessary Some people in liberal theology today actually say the atonement is not necessary. And that's a very big problem. So we need to understand why is the atonement necessary? Was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in our place? And the answer is no. Jesus was the only option and the only solution for our atonement to happen. We need to realize though that it was not necessary for God to save people. He didn't have to. He chose to, right? He chose to save people because of his love. So think about this. Second Peter 2 4 says, God did not even spare the angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloom and darkness to be kept until the judgment. God could have chosen in his perfect justice to have us have the same results as the angels, but he chose differently. He said, I choose to treat humankind differently. And so we need to realize that the atonement was not absolutely necessary, but he chose to give it to us. Since God decided to offer salvation to us, And for atonement to happen, it was necessary though for Jesus to suffer and die in our place. That is what needed to be necessary. In Luke 24, 26, Jesus says to some disciples on the road after his resurrection, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So Jesus himself is saying to the disciples, there is no other solution. And so this is what is called in theology, Consequent, absolute necessity view of the atonement. It was absolutely necessary for it to be Jesus, even though the atonement itself wasn't a promise, right? It was given to us out of Jesus's love. Jesus prayed in the garden of Gethsemane. He said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. So he's saying, is there another option for the atonement, right? Right. And his prayer showed us that no, it is not possible for Jesus to avoid death on the cross for atonement to happen. So God knew that beforehand, think of the Old Testament, there was sacrifice of animals and that there was no longer this this value of wanting to do that because there was going to be one final sacrifice. Hebrews 10.4 said, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So really, when Jesus came to atone for sins, he's atoning for sins for all of the Old Testament as well. Those animals didn't really atone for the sins, right? It says that it was only by Jesus' blood, by the means of his own blood, he secured eternal redemption by putting away sin, putting away sin, isn't that beautiful? By sacrificing himself. That's Hebrews 10, 4. He put away sin by sacrificing himself. So what is the nature? What is the nature of the atonement? How does it happen? Okay. There are two aspects of what Christ did. I alluded to this at the beginning, his life and his death. Okay. The life he had to live was he had to live a perfect life of obedience. And we've talked before about, well, could he not have lived a perfect life of obedience? He was, you know, by nature also God. But the idea is is he had to live a human life. That's why he didn't die until he was 33, right? He had to live a life under the requirements of the law in our place. And he had to be perfectly obedient to the will of God as our representative. It wasn't just he was perfect and so we needed a perfect sacrifice to die. It's he had to live a perfect life before he died so that we could receive his righteousness. Does that make sense? Then second, his suffering for us in which he took on the penalty due for our sins. And as a result, he died for our sins. So let's look at these a little more deeply. When Christ's obedience during his life was lived out, this is called active obedience. So his life is called active obedience. Christ had not just earned forgiveness of our sins. Okay. If, if it was just, I earned forgiveness of your sins, that wouldn't just get us into heaven. Our guilt would have been removed for forgiveness of sins, right? Forgiveness means your guilt is removed, but we would have still been in the position of Adam and Eve before they had done anything good or bad. And so for this reason, Christ had to live a life of perfect obedience to God to earn righteousness for us. He was already perfectly righteous, but he had to show that he could maintain his righteousness for us to be able to receive it. So he had to obey the law his whole life. Paul reminds us in Philippians 3 9 that he did not have a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul is saying, my righteousness is from Christ. I didn't earn my righteousness. I didn't live a righteous life. My righteousness comes from Christ. He mentions this again in Romans 5, 19, and he mentions it again in 2 Corinthians five twenty one. So Paul is adamant, my righteousness comes from Christ. Christ, righteousness, right living, perfection, holiness, that all kind of fits in the same category. So just as God thought of our sin as belonging to Christ, he sees our sin as belonging to Christ. So he now thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. So God is thinking and seeing us as righteous because of Christ. So how can he do this? Because he thinks of us as being in Christ. We are in Christ when we accept Christ into our life, right? This means we are spiritually united. We are spiritually united with Christ and represented by him. So that Christ's record of perfect righteousness is counted as ours. So when you say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I'm surrendering my life. Please come and make my life what you want it to be. When you have that prayer of surrender, you are united spiritually with Christ, and his identity becomes yours. His righteousness becomes yours, and you are seen as perfectly righteous before God. Think of it also this way. If Jesus had needed only to be sinless, he could have died for us when he was a young child, but he didn't. He had to live a life of obedience for 33 years so that we could have his earned righteousness put on us. So the second part is Christ's suffering and death had to happen for our atonement, and that is called passive obedience. So the active obedience was him living a life of righteousness, and the passive obedience was in his death. I don't know if you've thought about this, but Christ didn't just suffer in the trial and in the cross. He suffered his entire life. It says he lived a life of suffering. He had tremendous temptation in the wilderness. It says that he suffered to grow in maturity in Hebrews 5.8. There was a suffering in growing in maturity. He had intense opposition from the Jewish leaders. And Isaiah 53.3 says that he was a man of sorrows. It didn't just mean his death. It meant his life had challenges. His family didn't believe him, right? His town didn't want him. And so he lived an entire life of suffering that can help so many of us that know we've lived such a long life of suffering he went through physical pain before and on the cross they flogged him to the point he should have died from the flogging the crucifixion was one of the worst ways to die because you're dying of suffocation it's slow and excruciating and he accepted that death but he also went through spiritual pain. Have you thought of that? Spiritual pain by bearing our sins. We experience psychological pain from the guilt of our sins. We can feel guilty, right? We can have anguish. I don't know if some of you have heard this story of mine, but when I moved to Arizona, it was seventh grade and I didn't know how to make friends. And so I decided to lie to my friends and tell them that I had leukemia and I thought if I told them that, they'd be my friends because they'd feel sorry for me. Well, this lie went on for six years. And I just thought every sermon was on lying. And I felt so guilty in my heart. There was a point I prayed to God, would you actually please give me cancer? Because I'd rather experience the pain and the challenge and the trial of cancer than living the guilt of this lie. That's the burden of our sin, right? The burden of our lie. And finally, I came out and I told the truth. And boy, when we bring our sin into the life, can there be healing and hope. And I'm so thankful that I was able to confess that sin to others. But there can be great anguish when we are living in our sin. (laughs) Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. All of our sin of every single person for all time was laid on Jesus on that cross. I can't even imagine if we can barely handle our own sin. Can you imagine handling every single person's sin? Here he had never sinned and yet he chose to have laid on himself all the sins for all these people. Isaiah 53, 12 says, he bore the sins of many. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body. The sins were in his body on the tree. And then it says, by his wounds, you were healed. In his body was our sin. And 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that it was God who made Christ to be sin. I mean, he fully became sin. Sin for our sake. God put our sins on Jesus. How did he do that? In the same way Adam's sins were imputed or put onto us, God then said, I'm going to impute or put your sins onto Jesus. So, in exchange, Adam put it onto us, and now God is taking ours and putting it on to Jesus. And he thought of them as belonging to Christ. I can't imagine bearing the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, and the anguish that he experienced in his soul. And to think then, he faced that pain alone. All his disciples abandoned him in the garden after he had done nothing but love them, right? God the Father abandoned him on the cross because he was made sin and God could no longer be in his presence. He was deprived of closeness with the Father, which he had always had all of his life and for all of eternity. There was no more fellowship. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 27, 46? My God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Why? Why? At the height of his suffering, facing the weight of the guilt of millions of sins, Jesus was all alone. And then, not just the weight of the sin, not just the abandonment, not just the physical pain that he was under being nailed to that cross, he bore the wrath of God. All of our sins deserved wrath, and Jesus became the object of the intense. Hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God, over all the years of history of mankind, had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Can you imagine bearing the full wrath of God, not for yourself, but for every single person, for every single sin? Because God thought of Christ as sin. He treated him as sin. This is what we mean when we say Jesus was our propitiation. Jesus was our sacrifice. He didn't just die. He died a physically painful death, a spiritually painful death, an abandonment, and he experienced the wrath of God for our atonement. And then he changed God's wrath toward our favor. God did not simply forgive sins and then forget about the punishment in generations past, he forgave sins and store up his anger against those sins. And at the cross, all of his fury went out and was unleashed against his own son. Now, here is a wrong view that some people have about the atonement. Some people misunderstand God because they want to only focus on God as a loving God, right? Well, God is love. And they would propose to you, it is inconsistent with his character as a God of love to show wrath against humans he created and for whom he is a loving father. Why would God show wrath to us if he loves us? It doesn't make sense to them. God's wrath is also part of his character, and it's clear in both the Old and New Testament. So we cannot omit that God is a just God and God also has wrath. Some of the verses that they talk about Jesus bearing the wrath of God, Hebrews 2.17, First John 2:2 2, 2 and 1 John 4:10 talk about Jesus bearing this wrath of God. The idea of bearing the wrath of God is also in the imagery when it says, "You are drinking a cup of God's wrath, or you are taking on God's wrath." Often the cup either means a cup of wrath or a cup of blessing when you're taking it on." Psalm 75:8 said this, "O Jerusalem, you have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath." and then jesus asked please let this what cup the cup was not his death the cup was god's wrath have you thought that please let this cup pass me is there any other way it doesn't just mean i don't want to die on a cross it meant do i have to experience your wrath have you thought of that it is important to insist on the fact that christ bore the wrath of god in our place because the heart the doctrine of atonement. You cannot believe Jesus died for our sins unless you also believe he received the wrath of God. It means that there is an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and justice of God, sin must be paid for. And Jesus did pay for it. The best passage to describe Jesus' suffering is Isaiah 53. And what I did is I just want to pull out some points from this chapter instead of reading it in its entirety. Here are some things from Isaiah 53. He bore our grief, all your grief from your sin. He carried our sorrows. He was stricken. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins And iniquities. He was chastised so we could have peace with God. He was wounded so that we could be healed spiritually. God laid on Jesus the sin of us all. He was oppressed. He was judged. His life was cut off. It was God's will for Jesus to be crushed. God caused Jesus grief. Jesus' soul was an offering for our guilt. He had anguish in his soul, but it was to make many righteous that he bore all our sins. He poured out his soul to death. And then what did he do? He made intercession for sinners. Wow. Jesus' suffering had to last until God's wrath was appeased. He had to suffer until God's wrath was finished. Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep breath of God poured over Jesus, wave after wave. And in the end, Jesus knew the heaviness of sin was removed. And that is when he cried out, It is finished. The wrath of God was finished. The payment of sin had happened. He could then commit his spirit to the Father, only because all sin was paid for and gone. Jesus had completed the payment for our sins so that we don't have to experience eternal suffering for our sins. If we had to pay the penalty for our own sins, we would have had to suffer eternally in separation from God. He didn't have to experience wrath eternally. Thank you. That's wonderful, right? So the reason we would have had to suffer eternally, but Jesus didn't, why is that, right? It's because if we were suffering for our own, th- own sins, we would have never been able to make ourselves right with God again because we never started <coughs> with righteousness. But because Jesus started with righteousness, there was a way to pay and experience wrath of God for all the sin. But we will never be able to make up the sins that we have committed to God. And so it would require eternal punishment for ourselves. There's no way to live again and earn perfect righteousness and there would be no way to undo our sinful nature. But Jesus was able to bear all the wrath of God and bear it to the end. Think of this. No mere person could have ever done this. They couldn't have handled the weight of the world, of the sin. It wasn't just that we weren't righteous. It's that we couldn't have bear the wrath of God to the very end. But because Jesus was both divine and human in his nature, Jesus was able to bear all the wrath of God against sin and bear it to the end. Jesus also did not need to die repeatedly. Some people think, well, do we have to keep thinking of him as dying because we keep sinning? But he fully satisfied God's wrath for all past and future sins. So this gives us assurance that there's no more penalty for sin. We don't have to pay a penalty for sin. When we go to heaven and we're at that judgment seat, there will be no penalty for our sin. So what's the meaning of the blood? You know, we know that blood is essential, that, that it said that it had to be Jesus's blood, not the blood of animals, right? The New Testament fre- frequently connects the blood of Christ with our redemption. It says the blood of Christ, when we say that, literally means his death. It means he has fully died. Hebrews 9, 4 says, By the blood of Christ, our conscious consciousnesses are cleansed. We gain access to God in worship and prayer because of the blood of Christ. We are progressively cleansed from our remaining sin by the blood of Christ. We are able to conquer Satan by the blood of Christ. We are rescued out of a sinful way of life by the blood of Christ. So blood was necessary because it was a judicial execution in a sense, right? He was condemned to death and so his life had to be taken. Maybe you've heard this term in theological circles. It's called penal substitution, do we need to believe in what's called penal substitution? So let's learn what that is. It says Christ's death was penal in that he bore the penalty. Penal means penalty when he died. So he was the substitute for the penalty we deserved. right? That's what penal substitution means. And this is the orthodox understanding of the atonement. And it's held by most evangelical theologians. Another term for this could be vicarious atonement, because he vicariously did it for us. A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another and represents them. So Christ's death was vicarious because he stood in our place and represented us. And as our representative, he took the penalty that we deserve. And think about this is the heart of the gospel, right? We are sharing more deeply today. What is the gospel? What does it mean that Jesus did for us? And so when you attack this idea of penal substitution, it's actually attacking the central message of Jesus. So we have to say, no, Jesus took our penalty. He took on the sin and he took on the wrath of God. And that is part of what atonement is. So what are some different aspects of atonement? Let's talk through that. The atoning work of Christ, it's complex and it has several different effects on us. So we're going to talk about the effects of the atonement on us. Christ's death met four needs we have. So what are the four needs we have that he met in his death? One, we actually deserve to die as the penalty for our sin. We actually deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. Three, we're separated from God by our sins. And then we're in bondage to sin and we're in bondage to the kingdom of Satan. So these are four concerns that he wanted to overcome by atoning for us. I'll say them again. We deserve to die as the penalty for our sin. We deserve to bear God's wrath against sin. We are separated from God because of our sins. And then we're in bondage to sin and the kingdom of Satan. So these four needs are met by Christ's death and atonement. And here's how they're met. First one is sacrifice. He paid the penalty of death that we deserve because of our sins. So he died as a sacrifice for us. And that's Hebrews 9.26. So we deserve to die. He died instead. The next one's propitiation. To remove us from the wrath of God that we deserved, Christ died as a propitiation for our sins. That's 1 John 4.10. So he is the sacrifice and he is the propitiation third he is the reconciliation he wanted to overcome our separation from god and we needed someone to provide reconciliation to bring us back into fellowship with god and that's second corinthians 5 18 through 19 and then finally after reconciliation we have redemption we are redeemed because we are sinners we are in bondage to sin and satan we need someone to provide redemption and redeem us out of that bondage. And what's redemption? It's like paying a ransom to someone. It's a price that we pay to redeem someone from bondage or captivity, right? The, the bad guys come and kidnap you and they say, we want a ransom for your life. And that's what Jesus did. He said, your life is Satan's and I'm going to come and ransom it. And with my death, you are no longer Satan's. You can become mine. And Paul says in Romans 6, 11, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So these are the four amazing things that happen because of our atonement. Sacrifice, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. So let's go to the question of, did Christ actually descend into hell when he died? Where do we get this idea? Where do do we hear this theology? And what do we think today? So, the phrase, he descended into hell, does not occur anywhere in the Bible. So, that's first important to know. Where it comes from is the Apostles' Creed. And the Apostles' Creed says, Christ was crucified, died, and was buried, and he descended into hell. So, it's in the Apostles' Creed. But this creed was not written or approved by a single church council. Remember how we talked about how certain creeds had to be approved of and councils didn't mean like 20 people. It meant hundreds of people from all over Christendom came together for like a year or two to agree on these creeds. But the Apostle Creed that's so held by especially like the Catholic Church, this one was not approved by a church council. Okay. And it was a gradually taking shape from 200 AD to 750 AD. So this was a moldable creed for many, many, many years. It kept changing. And in the earlier versions of the creed, it never mentioned Jesus descending into hell. So the creed closer to when the apostles were alive, never taught this, which means the apostles themselves probably never taught this. And so it was only written in one version And that version was after 650 AD. So here, this whole theology of did Jesus descend into hell started with a creed that was never approved by multiple people. It was in one document in about 650 AD. So this is a reason why we should pause and say, let's not hold this as a strong theology that we believe. Now, there are five passages that people can use to interpret, well, maybe Jesus descended into hell. So I want us to look at those and say why we still don't think these verses mean he descended into hell. First, some of your Bible translations will use the word hell, where the better translation in the Greek word is actually grave. That's kind of important, huh? Jesus descended into the grave or Jesus descended into hell? So this is why we sometimes have to go back to the original language to find out how did somebody interpret it for our English translations. Acts 227 makes more sense in the ESV here's what it says because you will not leave my soul in the grave. Like that makes more sense than because you will not leave my soul in hell. Right? You will not leave cuz God didn't leave his soul in the grave right? Ephesians 4, 8 and 9 says he descended into the lower regions of the earth. Okay. What's the lower regions of the earth? I mean, is hell really in the center of the earth? I mean, I don't think so. Right? So first of all, that's probably not where hell really is. But a lot of theologians have said when I wouldn't have interpreted, if I just heard descended into the lower regions of the earth, I might've thought again, that meant grave. But what more interpretations of theologians say is it's actually He descended to earth when it was his incarnation or his birth. It wasn't about his death. It was actually about his arrival to earth as his birth, that the lower regions of the earth, because there there were levels of, of the highest heaven and things like that. So they would say, that's not about hell. Then another verse would be 1 Peter 3, 18 and 20. It says, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now that's a strange verse. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Well, most theologians would say this actually means Christ preached to people when they're actually still people on earth, not just spirits, but they are now spirits. They have now died and they are are now in prison. So it's saying he he tried to talk to them before they ended up going to the place of hell. 1 Peter 4, 6 said, For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. Do we preach the gospel to the dead? Okay, let's figure out this first. It says, For this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So some people say, oh, this is why we need to pray for the dead. This is why maybe they're in purgatory. This is why, and they start creating all these theologies off of one confusing verse. And so this does not mean that Christ went to hell to preach the gospel to those who have died. Because think about the entirety of theology in the Bible. First of all, the only passage in the Bible that would support people get to hear the gospel after they died, right? I mean, there's no other passages that encourage second chances for salvation after death. And there's actually verses that deny this idea, right? Luke 16, 19 through 31, Hebrews 9, 27. You think about Lazarus. It's a story. It's a parable that Jesus told. But it's a rich young ruler, and he said to Lazarus, please go tell my brothers the gospel so that they don't end up here with me. You know, so he had no second chance, but he was hoping those that were still living would hear the gospel so they don't end up there. There is no second chance to hear the gospel when you die. I mean, Jesus was very clear about that in in his parables when he shared that. We can be encouraged as we face death that Jesus had to face it too, but he didn't end up in hell, nor will we. Okay, we're not going to have to experience hell before we get into heaven. Another thing to know is the Greek word Hades can also mean grave. Sometimes we think Hades just means hell, but it can also mean grave. Genna, G-E-E-N-N-A. Gena is the Greek word for hell, and that's the place of punishment. So if you see the word gena, then that would mean hell in your translations. So we want to affirm Christ did not suffer after his death. When he said it was finished, it was finished. He did not need to then go to hell and experience more wrath. Does that make sense? So that for sure did not happen. Also... He said to the thief on the cross next to him, what, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Today, not after three days when I rise again, or after three days and 40 days while I'm living on earth. And then when I ascend into heaven, I'll see you then in 43 days, right? No, he said, today I'm going to see you in paradise. So this is showing us that Jesus did not end up in hell. What is the extent of the atonement? Who does it cover? This is the debate of of many, many, many theologians. People wonder these two questions. Did Jesus pay for the sins of the entire human race? Or did he only pay for the sins of those who he knew would ultimately be saved? This is a debated discussion. There's two sides of the issue. And normally they would put it into the camp reformed view and non-reformed view. And we're going to show you both just so you have an understanding. Honestly, there are verses that support both sides of the discussion. And so you can be on either side of the discussion and still be a strong Bible-believing Christian. Neither is heresy. Neither is false teaching. So this is what we call a persuasion-level belief. I'll continually teach you this. Conviction-level is we all need to agree on the atonement, right? That's the topic of the day. Jesus died. Jesus took on the wrath of God. We don't all have to agree, was it for every single person or was it just for the elect or those that end up coming to Christ in the end? That is subjective. We don't need to agree on that in order to go to heaven, right? So you put that under what's persuasion, all right? And we can all have fellowship with one another and agree to disagree. It should not divide us. But this is what creates denominations due to this one theology, sadly. I wish it wasn't that important but people have literally created denominations because of this scripture itself never singles this topic out as a significant doctrine of importance it doesn't say understanding who jesus died for is crucial for your salvation And Jesus never mentions it in any theological discussion in the Bible. It's not a discussion between the disciples. It's not a discussion in the the letters. And so it's not something that was debated in the early church. It was not important, okay? I'm just teaching it to you so you understand both sides of how people view it. So there's very little direct scriptural Mm -hmm. classification of this. And so we all need to be cautious to make this the foundation of the atonement. That's not the foundation, right? What's the foundation? Jesus died and he experienced the wrath of God so we could receive righteousness. That is what we agree on, okay? So let's talk about it though. Those who believe Jesus died for the entire human race are what's called non-reformed. That's the non-reformed view. They would believe the payment for sin must have already been made and must be actually available for all people. So this is called general redemption. Jesus generally redeemed everybody, but not everybody gets the benefits of him dying on the cross because they didn't receive him. So this would be the idea of general redemption or what's called unlimited atonement. <clears throat> unlimited, it's for anybody. His atonement is for anybody. Jesus's death was to redeem all people. Now, supporting scriptures in the Bible talk about Jesus saves the whole world. Here's some of them. John one twenty nine. behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's John the Baptist, his cousin, speaking, right? Or 2 Corinthians 5.19 states, God was reconciling the world to himself. Or 1 John 2.2 says, Christ is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So not just for us who are saved, but for the sins of the whole world. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.6 that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all. Okay, so you can see how there's a strong argument for Jesus died for every single person. Sin was paid for every single person. But here's how the other side would view it, the Reformed. Those who believe Jesus died for the elect or the chosen or those who would believe in Jesus are called the Reformed. The Reformed argue against the non-Reformed That if Christ's death actually paid for the sins of every person who ever lived, then there'd be no penalty left for anyone to pay, right? Because he experienced all the wrath of God for all the sins that were ever committed. So why would someone need to experience God's wrath in hell? Do you see that? That's their question. That's what they're saying is if it was fully appeased, then why would anyone need to experience the wrath of God? And it would follow that all people would be saved without exception, because he paid the penalty for every single person. God could not condemn to eternal punishment anyone's whose sins were already paid for. And here are their supporting passages. John 6, 37 and 38. It says, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day implying God the Father chooses people that are saved, that he gives to Jesus, but not everybody is saved. John 17, 9 says, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So the Reformed believe in what's called limited atonement. You might have heard that term. Limited means he only died for the people that would have faith in him. And that's called limited atonement. He didn't die and experience the wrath of God for every single person in the world. So he did not atone for all people, but to, for the elect. And so they prefer the term particular redemption. Jesus particularly redeemed certain people. So it's called particular redemption. What can we agree on? Whether you would choose the reform side or the non-reform side, we all agree not every single person will be saved. Both sides agree, well, not everyone's going to heaven. Okay, we can all agree on that. We all agree that we can freely offer the gospel to anyone. The Reformed, even though they believe in the elect, say we need to still share the gospel with everyone because we don't know who the elect are that are going to say yes to the gospel. So we all still freely share the gospel with everyone. So here is a way we could be united in the atonement, whether you were Reformed or non-Reformed. We could say Christ died, to make salvation available to all people. He's making salvation available. He didn't die for the sins of every person, in their view, but he's making salvation available to all people. Or you could say, Christ died to bring the free offering of the gospel to all people. So that's a way that we could both agree on both sides how to share the atonement. Christ died to bring the offering of the gospel to all people. All people hear the gospel. We don't know what sins he fully died for or not. It's confusing, but we know he died. We know we share the gospel and we know that some will respond and be forgiven of their sins. So when we think about the atonement, when we think about it was his life, not just his death. And when we think about it was not just a physical death, it was spiritual turmoil and the entirety of the wrath of God. I hope it gives us just a greater sense of awe of what Jesus did for us, and it also reminds us another way to share the gospel with others. Maybe this week you can say, I learned something new. You know, I've been a believer a long time, but I never thought about the importance of Jesus's life and death as I have this week. And maybe you could sit down with someone that's curious or someone that thinks they're a Christian, but you're not sure if they are, and you could share with them some of these things In the same way that I shared with you to help them realize what Jesus went through and that we can give them an offering to say, would you want to receive this amazing sacrifice as your own? Would you like to not just be free from your sins, but experience this relationship with this God who loves you and sacrificed for you? And so I think this is a deeper way we could share the gospel with others that really can have them be in awe of Christ and what he's done for us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. I cannot understand how you chose to still save us by sending your son when you didn't have to. You didn't choose a second chance for the angels, but you have given us a second chance as humanity. And Jesus, we will never fully understand all that happened when you said you were gonna live a righteous life and then die this just excruciating death where you experienced the wrath of God and the abandonment of God. We will never comprehend what you did for us. May it lead us to worship. May it lead us to want to live out that righteous life in the power of your Holy Spirit. And may it help us to share you with others that do not know you, Lord, and that you would draw people to yourself and lives would be changed and people would experience true redemption. In your name we pray, amen.